0: Players gather to
1: cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Demonic Consultation, Ad Nauseam, Underworld Breach, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and theEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Eternal Glory Podcast: Shifting Foundations, The Core of Legacy. I'm Phil Gallagher, aka Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, aka Bosch and Roll.
1: And I am Bryant Cook of the Epic Storm. We've already recorded thirty minutes
0: of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com/eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. And honestly, I think the pre-show that we just recorded was one of our best ones ever. There's there's a lot of uh, hidden strategy content and discussion of Bowmasters and a cop car gets involved at one point.
2: Yeah, we did accidentally just record a second normal main episode on top of the normal like personal stuff that we don't put out for the public. So there is actual. We talk a lot about Bowmasters and the numbers in the format and what we think about that if you care about that sort of thing, it's a good time to subscribe.
0: Patreon.com slash eternal glory. All right. And uh, while we are shilling and paying the bills, uh, this episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software. If you're interested in running an event or want your LGS to do, show, do so, but are worried about the logistics of it, Command Tower is the perfect software for you. You can create and manage four player or one V one tournaments easily. And it's unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. All right, so today's episode is going to kind of be one of those evergreen episodes where we talk about some theory. We're going to do a little bit of deck building history, and ultimately we're going to be talking about the new cycling cards from Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth, as it's becoming increasingly clear that Those commons are going to have huge impacts on every format from Pauper all the way down to Vintage.
2: Yeah, we're going to start our story here with a deck called Miracle Grow. I believe Alan Comer was responsible for this deck.
0: He figured out that
2: if you just play fewer lands and you have spells that can represent lands if they need to and represent spells if they need to, your deck gets a lot better. And he invented a a deck uh, built around Quirion Dryad where... Uh, it gets bigger every time you cast a spell that is white, blue, black or red and just a bunch of two drop creatures land grant, days, gush, those sound familiar, right? Like those are all cards that we either play or what if we could. Just went nuts with a deck with only 10 lands in it. And this was at a time when people were putting between like 20 and 30 lands in decks cuz people didn't know anything yet. Like theory was very young and this was a huge leap forward. It just really changed how deck building uh, was even thought about.
1: If you look at the super early decks in Legacy, you have Bant Threshold, you know, the predecessor of all of those Delver variants that so many people love today. And back in the early days of the format, Brian, you had two cantrips you were allowed to play, if you remember them. Brainstorm, important. That was the end of the list.
2: Yeah, there's a, a story, I think. Adam Barnello told this story in one of his articles where uh, it was an old 1.5 tournament before Legacy was even called Legacy, and he cast a portent against Asip Levadovich, who had just played it because it was a local thing. He wasn't a big 1.5 guy, and he kind of like made a face and picked up the portent and was like, this can't be the best card you can play. Like He just couldn't believe that this cleared the bar of playability and that there wasn't something that was better than it. But yeah, for a long time, it was Brainstorm and Portent, and also for a long time, People thought Brainstorm sucked. I believe it was Andrew Cuneo who figured out if you put it in a deck with Thawing Glaciers, you can shuffle your deck pretty reliably, and then you don't have to redraw the bad cards. And that just took Brainstorm from awful to insane once people figured that out. Brainstorm was not voted the worst card in Ice Age. That was Necropotence. Check the records. It's there. But Brainstorm was on the list of awful cards from Ice Age at one point before people figured out how to use it.
1: I remember when Fetchlands came out in Onslaught, and Brains from, went from like exactly like Brian said, of being like, eh, to insanely good. More likely, back to the Threshold decks, is I remember vividly when Serum Visions came out, and MTG the, MTG, the Source was at war. It was Serum Visions versus Porton, which one do you play? Because back then, they thought 8 Cantrips was it. You were going to play these eight things that smoothed out your draws and that was the end of the list. You weren't supposed to play Portent and Serum Visions, which is wild if you think about where we are today, where Ponder is being cut. Preordain is not that great in an era of the London Mulligan. How far we've come since Serum Visions was possibly playable. So
0: I like putting some perspective on for people. We are talking about times where the things that we view as the core of legacy today, these just like evergreen immortal cards that fit into almost every deck like brainstorm were were questioned that the I, the very idea that cantripping was good hasn't always existed
1: there was definitely a time period where if a draw spell didn't create card advantage it didn't see play and it was like that until 2007, 8. Like, Brainstorm was kind of the exception of the rule. But people played Skeletal Scrying in Legacy and AKs and stuff like that because you needed to go up on cards.
2: Right. That was also... there. There is some more context for this. Like, deck building theory has evolved, but also cards are different than they used to. Back in the day, cards were just worse, or at least wing conditions were worse. Uh, we, we didn't have Planeswalkers. We didn't have... Dreadhorde arcanist and Ragavan, you know uh, there wasn't stuff like that so a lot of the times it was just counting up who had the most cards at any given turn and that was probably the person who was going to win it's probably better that magic's not like that anymore a card like serum visions versus the long-term value of accumulated knowledge it was just not even really a conversation so all of this led to a type of deck building that got to be known as xerox and xerox are copy machines for those of you who don't who are not old enough to remember copy machines uh and basically the the inside joke is that uh, it's just a copy like everything is just uh coming out the same every time because you can manipulate your draws and you can have the same game plan all the time there's also some urban legends that it's called xerox because randy bueller made a deck and everybody just copied it all of that is lost to time and old people will argue with you one way or the other but the xerox deck building archetype that's terminology that's largely irrelevant now Uh, vintage players still use it because vintage is so powerful that xeroxing and building a deck around like preordains and stuff is it doesn't always make sense compared to vamp tutor for tinker or whatever so xerox is still its own category in vintage Uh, but the idea of these is that you can shave lands and replace them with cards that can draw lands if they need to or draw spells if they need to and as the game goes on when your opponent has a normal land count in their deck they will draw a land or two when it's very important to have spells and you will keep drawing spells and then you'll win when that happens.
1: Back when I first became interested in playing Storm Combo, I looked a lot at Vintage at how to build it in Legacy. And I would read the Mana Drain, which was the big forum back in the day. And they talked a lot about a rule of one mana for one card. And oftentimes it was cards like Sleight of Hand, Knight's Whisper, and Chromatic Sphere. And at the time, I thought all of the eggs from Odyssey were so cool. And I was like, they make perfect sense. But they didn't follow the rule. I think they were honestly... Correct at the time because back then storm decks were they you didn't have a powerful engine like *Pass in Flames* or *Ad Nauseum*. It was literally just chaining *Sleight of Hands* and knights Whispers* until you cast your tenth spell. Storm decks were much more honest, and that worked at the time because the philosophy behind it was strong. And I think it's just worth noting because I think a lot of the core concepts of deck building today are still based around that.
2: Yeah, you see a lot of weird stuff like that, like. Seeing it written down one mana for one card in some sort of intellectual capacity seems preposterous, knowing what we know now. Uh, Like, sometimes spending three mana on one card is worth it if that card is of a certain quality or answers a certain problem. And, like, we have a more sophisticated thing. And I actually see a lot of statements like that in casual commander circles, which, I mean, feel free to roll your eyes, but that is the average Magic player now. And you see a lot of stuff, like, card must draw more cards than it costs for me to cast it for or like a mana rock must pay for itself within two turns of being cast and you just see these like weird heuristics that may or may not actually make sense but people still have them and i think it's safe to say that the casual commander deck building median person is probably close to a 2001 era met budding magic pro uh the average person knows way more about magic theory but also so much is there to figure out and they're not really asking the right questions in a
0: lot of places. In today's deck building in Legacy, if you tell someone you're playing blue, the first cards that, that they're going to think are in your deck are Brainstorm and Ponder, probably in that order with Force of Will probably being the one that they would say after that. Those two cards are just expected to be everywhere, but again, that wasn't always the case. Let's go down the line a few more years to when Blue-White Miracles was one of the best decks in Legacy, and slightly after that, the best deck in Legacy unquestionably. Ponder wasn't a four of there. It was just not something that people accepted you should just be doing now admittedly they did have sensei's divining top as a colorless cantrip at that time ponder is so good and today we just expect that it should go absolutely everywhere at all times in blue decks as a four of that wasn't the case then
2: yeah and if we look at ponder's history in standard as well that card was not played in the Lorwyn era control decks at all the Lorwyn era fairies deck Blue Black Fairies, a deck built on casting turn two Bitter Blossom as often as possible. Usually played zero Ponder. I think in Block Constructed, they were reaching for playables and eventually moved their way to four Ponders, but the standard list didn't play it. It took a long time to figure it out. If you look at those lists, it's it's just preposterous. You see this low-to-the-ground blue tempo deck built on resolving a two-drop on turn two, and you wouldn't even know that Ponder's legal in that format. Very strange. And then in M10... Ponder was reprinted. Uh, I looked through a list of M10 standard decks. The only one that played Ponder was Merfolk. And that's among many blue decks. There was a mono blue, like sanity grinding mill deck. There were a number of control decks. And the only one with Ponder was Merfolk. And then not until M12, when Ponder was standard legal again, did people really realize like, oh yeah, we should be playing this one. And even then I remember, I think Shaheen Sarani, uh, he's just known for his control content he was playing like two ponders in his esper control decks at that era and i think michael jacob was just very publicly ranching him for that at all times like i I think i remember michael jacob on stream saying something like i can't take seriously anyone who's willing to put two ponders in their control deck some people were all the way on it and some people were still like oh yeah this is a fine tool but it might not be what we want at least not as a four of so long history of figuring out how these cards actually slot in and where they go and a lot of people stepping into these big formats where these cards are legal, they know Brainstorm and Ponder are good because they've are they been told that and they're the core of every deck, but they don't really know how good. A couple of months ago on the channel, I played a deck where I think I had Brainstorms, but I didn't have Ponders. And it was like four Strixes and four Coatles. And it was like we replaced the cantrips with creature cantrips. The two drop does not help you find your second land the way that Ponder does and i said in the wrap-up of the video and the league did not go well i was like yeah the problem is that ponder is part of your mana base in legacy decks and i just said that like people should know it and the comments were like wait what do you mean ponder is part of your mana base and i was like oh yeah that's why it's there that's why we play 19 lands in a control deck in legacy where in standard control decks play 27 28 lands 19 is preposterous we get away with that because of Brainstorm and Ponder.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that, Brian. In my early days, I was a standstill gamer who ran 25 to 26 lands, which was considered short at the time. From there, let's flash forward a little bit to peak Star City games coverage with Stoneblade mirrors, with your Riptide Laboratories bouncing Vendelian clicks and stuff. 22 to 23 was popular then. And then we flash forward a little bit to Philip Schoniger on Star City Games when he traveled to the U.S. And I remember Pat and Cedric talking on coverage. They're like, this Miracles list has 20 lands in it. Like, it was just preposterous that he was playing 20 lands in Miracles. I don't know if you remember watching this, but he did very well in that event. And it was, like, really the first time someone had played 4-Ponder and just went to town. And within two weeks, every single blue player I knew had 4-Ponder in their deck.
2: Yep, I... Recently on the channel, I played a check pile deck for color control without green. It was an 18 land deck with Jace the Mind Sculptor in it, Snapcaster Kolagun's command. Like it was intending to play four and five mana spells as part of its plan A. It, there was no backup plan. There was no Murktide Regent. Like this was the plan to win the game. 18 lands, every single one was non-basic. Forget about Wasteland. Forget about anything. Forget about just hitting your land drops naturally. The cantrips will get us there, trust me. And it worked. I was blown away. Like, that's a Delver mana base in a grindy control deck. And, And it worked because every card in the deck said draw a card on it in addition to whatever else it did.
0: So sticking on the line of, like, the cantrips are part of the mana base, there's other cards that work that way in Legacy. So, like, Aether Vile Gamers, Chrome Mox Gamers, Life from the Loam Gamers. Like, those cards are critical to your deck functioning the way they're supposed to function. And you might notice sometimes in sideboard games, like, you pull some of those things out to fit other things in and your deck will noticeably feel more clunky as you play games when you remove things that are a piece of your mana base. Or for the cantrip players, when your opponent starts with a turn one Chalice of the Void and you don't get to cast your cantrips, sometimes it's hard to get to that second or third land that allows you to cast the thing that will get rid of the chalice.
2: Right, and even if you do find the answer to chalice on turn three or so, now you've missed three turns of development with your cantrips, you would like to have your fourth land drop coming out, not hit your second land drop for Prismatic ending on turn four, then you got to dig out of it. It really is like getting Stone Rain two or three times when somebody chalices you on the play when you're a cantrip deck.
0: All right, so why don't we go ahead and transition into some more recent times where the same sort of theory has applied, where some new information or tech or card has come along and changed our viewpoint on what deck building or legacy or mana bases are supposed to look like. And uh, why don't one of you uh, old men over there take us back to 2006 for Cold Snap?
1: Wait, are we talking about Rite of Flame? Finally!
2: Yeah, Rite of Flame is part of your mana base and doesn't belong in decks. Okay, that out of the way. Let's, (laughs) Let's talk about the card we're actually talking about. This is Mishra's Bauble. This card was a brick for a long time. It was worthless. It was just like, oh, here's this stupid thing. I get it. It's a throwback to Urza's Bauble. That's cute. Into the chaff pile it goes. how it was released in 2006. Now Mishra's Bauble's everywhere. I've seen it in control decks to set up predicts and miracles. Uh, we know it's in Delver decks as like a two to four of pretty regularly. Plus the obvious artifact synergy decks like 8cast and Bomberman, like they're all into it. What What would you think if I told you nobody played that card until 2017? The card existed for 11 years before people really started exploring it. And it was Sam Black with the Death Shadow deck. And basically, some incentives had changed. Delirium was printed, and it was a way to put an artifact into the graveyard basically for free. And you also get a little extra information in a deck that wanted to play discard spells anyway. So it just made sense there. It made so much sense that people started trying it in other places. Those changing incentives, it, like I'm not saying Mishra's Bobble was under our nose the whole time and we should have been playing for it's just a 56 card deck. What are we doing here? Blah, blah, blah. There's, none of that's actually true. The existence of Delirium brought this card out of the chaff bin and made it like with, what it was like 40 bucks at one point, like very expensive card. It's been reprinted two or three times now, multi-format staple. Then we got Emery, then we got Dragon's Rage Channeler. There's a lot of reasons to want something like Bobble around now, and it does all the things that a cantrip does of lets you cheat on other important resources, at least on paper, because you will replace them
0: with your zero mana card eventually. The blue mages were very used to rebuying cantrips from the graveyard. Actually, were they used to that at this point? Was Snapcaster around in 2017? Yes, right? Yeah, yeah. 2010 was Snapcaster, maybe 2011. Oh, my bones. I can't keep track of time. Oh, my gosh. All right. That play pattern was like already around. And I think when people realized that they could start looping these bobbles from Graveyard, it got kind of silly. Like Emery is the way that we're still allowed to do it in Legacy. Luris doing it for a little while was very strong as well.
1: Around the same time period, we also gained Street Wraith. I mean, I think it came out about a year after Cold Snap. Traditionally, Street Wraith was a Death Shadow only card. At first release, people were like, oh, you could play a 56 card deck no matter what, now you could just literally throw it in anything, it's absolutely free. A lot of people were mostly excited about glass cannon decks at the time, like Belcher or Oops All spells. But outside of just Death Shadow, we're now seeing it in decks like Doomsday because the free card draw matters so much. And I think Street Wraith, like Ponder, is actually a part of the mana base because it allows you to cheat on lands.
2: Yeah, Street Wraith is really interesting because it compares pretty comparably to another card where you just mentioned how Straight Wraith is clearly for Death Shadow, some decks like Doomsday that value velocity over any other resource at certain phases of the game, like Straight Wraith. But how about another card where you lose 2 life and draw a card for free, which is Cotaxian Probe, which is banned in all formats and restricted in Vintage, where Straight Wraith is legal everywhere and played seldomly. What's the difference between... Gataxian Probe and Street Wraith when we're talking about deck building. Well, one of them pitches to Force of Will. Uh, that's coming to mind. Uh, I believe Bryant played this card into the dirt and never once paired it with Force of Will. So that's not the only mm. measure.
0: Uh, the okay. Epic
2: Storm didn't adopt Street Wraith.
0: I don't know. Maybe getting a whole bunch of information and being able to pilot the game nearly perfectly without having to do any of the guesswork that is inherent to the game of Magic the Gathering was an unfair advantage if you were pretty good at Magic.
2: Yeah, that's all true. Uh, Gataxian Probe also does Another thing which the inspiration for this episode that we're building up to here is the new Lord of the Rings one mana cycling effects. Those, like Street Wraith, have a secret mode where if you have five mana, you can just cast them. Gataxian Probe Secret Mode cost one mana. It was very easy to hit that one. And it wasn't like Street Wraith where you can get a card or a three power Swampwalk creature. It was no, you just get a probe, but you don't pay life for it if you don't want to pay life for it. So that one was like the we started this episode by talking about Miracle Grow. Opt was the one of the big innovations for Miracle Grow, and Gataxian probe sees almost as much as Opt does. Uh, like you see less of your information and a lot more of theirs, and the the mode of just zero mana if I want it, and pretty close to Opt if I don't want it. Uh, like.
0: That card is that those modes are too close together and too cheap. Assorted cantrips, any time that you have something that scales up as you cast cards or gives you utility as you cast cards, they become even more powerful. So your Dragon Rage Channeler, when you cast a ponder, looks at one more card. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of five cantrips that you might cast in a reasonable game. That is so much extra information. That's so many extra cards to the graveyard, fueling a Murktide Regent or another delve card, and like we've seen, the play pattern of cast a bunch of cantrips, cast a Treasure Cruiser, dig through time break multiple formats
1: well phil there's also a reason that if you look at current era delver sideboards it's almost exclusively one of so like you might see a couple copies of pyroblast one null rod one meltdown is because dragon's rage channeler makes it so you're going to find your one ofs in almost every reasonable matchup
2: and and mishra's bobble like with dragon's rage channeler you get the double whammy like i talked about delirium and card selection both being reasons to play mishra's bobble you get both. DRC cares about Delirium, and when your Mishra's bobble turns into Consider, a zero mana Consider, uh, that's a massive upgrade from even just what you're getting out of the Mishra's Bauble.
1: I like how we went from talking about Opt, and I thought to myself, I'm like, oh man, if Consider existed in 2006, Threshold would have been nuts to Urza's Bauble and Mishra's Bauble are just free Considers. It's beautiful.
2: Yeah, we we were playing Mental Note back then, just m- one blue, mill yourself for two, draw card. It's like Thought Scour that doesn't target. I remember when Thought Scour was printed, and we we're like, wait, we could target with our mental notes now. Cantrips have come so far. When's the last time you saw a mental note? It's probably Popper, like the Telerian Terror decks. But in a in a high power format like Legacy, our cantrips are just so good that's not even on the menu. I saw somebody within the last four years playing a modern deck with Thought Scour because it was Esper control built around Drown on the Lock. But if your opponent doesn't have a graveyard, it's no good. So he was like targeting me with his slot scours the whole time just to turn on his draw and the locks for later. Most decks these days have some sort of graveyard synergy. So it was like kind of fueling my gen.
0: The deck was bad. That's just not how you want to use your cantrips. So I just kind of had an interesting passing thought. And I'm just going to say this. So the blue mages can experiment if they want. Remember when we were playing around with Abundant Harvest? The uh, green sorcery, you choose land or non-land, you reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a card of that kind, put it into your hand, the rest go on the bottom. That's a cantrip that gets around orcish bowmasters. That's just a passing thought. I don't know that that card comes back into the uh, bar of playability, given the other things that we have access to, but food for thought
1: phil you probably won't believe me but i've been discussing that card the last couple weeks with the storm people because i've been desperately trying to cut blue from the epic storm i'm like what about abundant harvest we could cut down on lands like we could go lower than 12 and like it doesn't care about bowmaster but i think at least in a deck like tes the average card quality is lower you're gonna hit a rite of flame or whatever instead of you know, some powerful card like Prismatic Ending. But I've been thinking about that card a ton, and maybe it's just time to bite the bullet.
2: Yeah, there is a floor for what the replacement effect, like we've been talking about cantrips as shaving lands to replace them with spells that could be land. It seems like Abundant Harvest is the most obvious, clean playable execution of that because it's literally do you want a land or a spell I got you what I found with that one in the early days when it went in Strixhaven when it came out it was previewed and it was in the mythical archive sheet for Strixhaven then was actually released in Modern Horizons 1 and I did a lot of playing with that we all did and we were like wait can we play 17 lands now in control like 18 maybe Uh, go down from 20 21 and I found that that one the fact that All it does is replace itself with one card at random is was not good enough. And I would actually just have rather have 20 lands than 18 lands and some number of abundant harvest. Because what you get out of a ponder is very different than what you get out of a I select a land and then lands in your hand. Uh, It's it's and what Bryant was just saying about the card quality being bad. Like if in the mid game you're in top deck mode and it's like ponder. Gas. I get to see up to four cards here and look for something to do versus Abundant Harvest where you cast that and it like binds the next Abundant Harvest or uh, Force of Will that you don't want right now because you need action. Like I I was not impressed by Abundant Harvest, although it makes it very clear what you're going to get when you cast, which you don't necessarily get out of other cantrips. It doesn't get enough of it to clear the bar for me
0: let's talk about one of the other very broken cantrips we already touched on Gataxian probe let's go to arkham's astrolabe which if you want to play you now have to go all the way down to vintage as for a single colorless mana this just obliterated the color pie and alleviated so so many problems of four to five color mana bases. And it was an artifact which was often an upside because it was played alongside Oko, Thief of Crowns, and so it fixed your mana early and then became a 3-3 that beat your opponent to death. It was also the only way to give Icefang Coaddle Death Touch.
2: There has not been an Van Coaddle with Death Touch since Arkham's Astrolabe got banned.
0: It can't be done in magic.
2: Uh, the mana bases just don't support it. And yeah, Arkham's Astrolabe is a fascinating little piece of magic history. That was just in the common slot. Nobody thought anything of it. It's like, oh yeah, this will enable some snow decks in draft. And then it just got banned in modern pauper and legacy. All non-vintage formats where it was legal. You can't play that anymore. It's and the whole time, it, it took me a very long time, I'll admit. Obviously, I was benefiting from it. That's exactly my kind of card. The whole time I was like, how are we gonna ban a one mana cantrip that fixes your mana? Ban? Like, do you know what cards are banned in legacy? Fast bond. Yogg must bargain. Like, this is the legacy ban list. Survival of the Fittest. We're going to put Arkham's Astrolabe alongside those. Are you crazy? As it unfolded over the next year or so, however long it was legal, by the end I was like, oh yeah, it's not about raw power. It's about the color pie and how that is the way that Magic the Gathering is balanced. It costs you nothing to get complete freedom from Richard Garfield's color pie. And the fact, I think if Astrolabe didn't cantrip, it probably wouldn't be banned. I don't think that's worth investing a card into. Uh, I think you could still do that in ways uh, in Magic that don't get played. But the fact that we stapled the old miracle Grow, the Xerox, the draw card onto it, so we're cheating on land count and we can play exclusively basics without ever worrying about color constrictions, busted. What you get on top of your cantrip is really what we're we're talking about here. Like, that's the difference between Kataxian Probe and Street Wraith. And that's the difference between being banned in all formats and being played in fringe decks. Like Probe and Astrolabe versus Street Wraith.
1: I'm going to have a hot take here. I think that Arkham's Astrolabe would have taken a lot longer to get banned if you didn't have Oko behind it, turning it into an elk and beating your opponents to death with it. I think it probably wouldn't have been legal for at least another year.
0: I don't think that's a hot take at all.
1: Did they get banned in the same
2: ban wave? Or did they exist independently at any point?
1: I believe they were the same. I'll look it up right now.
2: Okay, because like I... I don't want to say I wish Oko was never printed, because I made a lot of money with that card. I won a Grand Prix with that card. Uh, Made multiple Eternal Weekend Top 8s with that card. Love Oko. Astrolabe was such BS all on its own. I know I've told this story before, but uh, in round one of Eternal Weekend Paris 2019... My I was on the draw and my opponent mauled to six and then went like Ancient Tomb, Chrome Mox, pitch a red card, Blood Moon. I went to my turn and I went Basic Island, Arkham's Astrolabe, passed the turn with seven cards in hand to their one card in hand. That was among the most unbeatable I've ever felt in any game of Magic. I would do anything for that high back again. <laughs> I'll be in back alleys paying high amounts of money for someone to inject Arkham's Astrolabe into my ass.
0: Yeah. And that it- is what I want. And I was on the other side of this, losing my goddamn mind, trying to play Death and Taxes and Moonstompy. Bryant is over here just going like, well, have you reimagined the deck for the metagame? You know, maybe you just need to adapt. And I'm like losing my mind like, Bryant, I have tried. I can't. I can't adapt. I can't beat it. Yeah,
2: it's a mana ability. What are you going to do? Pithing needle it? Good luck, nerds. Yeah, that was a great time to be a blue mage.
1: I have the answer on the banning of Arkham's Astrolabe. It was banned in the giant banning of February 15th of 21 alongside Oko and Dreadhorde. But if you go through other formats as well, that's the one where they just cleared every format of a bunch of different cards.
2: Oh yeah, that was the the dark COVID lockdown times because I was just talking about a tournament that happened in 2019 and you're talking about a ban list that happened in 2021. We had a full year of Snoko. I, I i don't remember it lasting that long but oh i holy. do
0: i do <laughs> sir i believe
2: you i believe you yeah
0: all right enough of the old stuff let's go ahead and talk about the new stuff and by that we specifically mean the lord of the rings one mana cyclers so in case you're somehow not familiar with this cycle yet each one of the non-blue colors got a six mana creature with uh land cycling and we're, we'll talk about exactly what it cycles for in a second and then blue got a five mana sorcery that land cycles i'll just read these
2: real quick let's let's tear off the band-aid eagles of the north five in a white three three flying when it enters the battlefield creatures you control get plus one plus so and first strike to land a turn and it has plane cycling one generous ent five in a green five seven reach when it enters the battlefield make a food token four cycling one Lorien revealed Three blue blue. Sorcery. Draw three cards. Oh baby, I like that. Island Cycling one. Oliphant. Hey, Timothy Oliphant came up in our pre-show. Patreons, join that thing if you're not there already. Enjoy that. Justified is back. Anyway, Oliphant. Five and a red. Six four trample. When Oliphant attacks another target creature, you control gets plus two plus zero and trample till end of turn. Mountain Cycling one. And Troll of kazadoom Five and a black. Troll of Kazadoom can't be blocked except by three or more creatures. Six five swamp cycling one super menace yeah it's so menacing
0: all right so the first thing that i want to touch on here just in case you haven't realized these these say things like island cycling so you can get any island including things like volcanic island or underground sea and our previous land cycling cards did not allow you to do this and this is an incredible upgrade
1: well phil if it gets any island what about Mystic Sanctuary?
2: That's an island Brian.
1: Oh, so I can get that. And then I could get back the Lorien Revealed to get another land.
2: Uh yeah, or you could draw three cards.
1: Oh, yeah. Later I, down the road. I like that too.
2: Yep. Uh obviously we're we're goofing around a little bit here, but has so four of these five cards are seeing significant play between modern and legacy. And Lorien Revealed is extremely interesting. That reminds me of cards like eternal dragon in the olden days bryant mentioned being a 26 land standstill gamer eternal dragon was in that deck i promise and these days timeless dragon which is an homage to eternal dragon but actually playable by modern standards and i remember when shards of alara came out or conflux i guess was when the cycle came out there was a cycle of powerful spells for like four to six mana that all had basic land cycling for one and whatever color they were and I remember John Finkel, who was still actively engaged in Magic at the time, just being hyped for Traumatic Visions, which is three blue-blue, counter-target spell, basic land cycling, one in a blue. And he was basically like, I'm a control player. All I want to do is hit my land drops early, then counter spells later. This is everything I want on the Earth. And while that card did see some standard in block play, didn't make it to Legacy, but one mana and not being gated by basic land types, not costing any color to start, Lorian revealed is the thing that John Finkel was jonesing for in 2008 or whenever Conflux came out.
0: You know, sometimes you open up on a hand with, like, one land and a ponder, and you're like, yeah, as long as one of these four cards hits a land drop, I'm fine, and this hand is incredible. And then some percentage of the time it doesn't, and you sit there and you never play Magic. Well, this Cycler set is just like okay i always have my first two land drops covered in these sorts of situations when you don't need the land they are real spells anyone who watches my stuff they know
2: island ponder keep is one of my mottos and there are many recorded instances caught in 4k of me keeping a one lander with a bunch of three mana planeswalkers on the draw with a timeless dragon and i'm just like if I draw any ponder, any brainstorm, or any land, this hand is just going off. And I would never keep those hands in my life without Timeless Dragon. And Timeless Dragon now costs one instead of two to hit that second land drop.
1: I would like to point out that Lorien Revealed is an instant, so you can ponder it's not. I- I'm sorry, the, the land cycling is instant speed. Okay, okay, my, yes. My bad.
2: Cycling is an instant speed ability.
1: Yes. So you could ponder find one card you want shuffling your upkeep you can brainstorm on your opponent's end step upkeep shuffle and that's something we haven't seen a whole lot in legacy that's a pretty common play pattern in pauper that i think just it's worth mentioning because like it might take you a second to just readapt your play patterns to recognize how good this card actually is because traditionally when you keep up when you ponder and you're like ah i really only want one of these i think i'm forced to shuffle you you don't have to think that way at least all the time anymore
2: the Ash Barons to shuffle ponder play pattern. Like the Fetchlands and Popper are Terramorphic Expanse. End of conversation. I guess there's like some panoramas or whatever, but those are bad. Ash Barrens hat is the, I think the only previous version of one mana cycle to get a land of your choosing. But that's basically it's cycling. These are better than that. And the fail case or not even fail case, but the alternate case of if we treat it like a split card. The split card on Ash Barons is Waste, and the split card on this is Ancestral Recall or Unblockable Giant Creature.
0: I think this set of cards is very, very much a fundamental shift in Legacy, kind of like the modal double-faced cards were, where people are now picking up on how good these cyclers are in the same way that it took a little while for the modal double-faced cards to see as much play as they do. But now, like, you're playing against a Moon Stompy deck, you just expect that there's four copies of Skull Smashing in there. People have realized, oh, the upside of that being able to imprint on Chrome Mox or Pitch to Fury is worth the downside of it occasionally going and Lightning Bolt you. Because the times where you do use the other mode of those cards, it just wins you the game. And if you want to think about the cyclers in that light, these are fetch lands that can pitch to grief or fury or force of will and all of those other similar spells.
2: Yeah, the the comp- the comparison to the modal double face lands is a great one, because in we've all been there where it's like, lol, I might actually hit seven mana for this call of Ameria this game. But it's not like a real plan that you build to. It's perfectly reasonable in any deck that would play Lorian Revealed to plan to get to five mana and draw three cards with that and depending on the fo- power level of your format like i don't know if death shadows really getting to six lands to play troll of Kazadum. doom i don't even know if they play six total lands in any medium power format i know living end in modern has gotten a huge boost from generous End and oliphant that deck it's very much built into that deck's plan to be able to like if they're facing down rest in peace or whatever they're like okay here is a 2 2 Shardless Agent. Choose not to cast Living End, and then just cast uh, the Sphinx of Mysteries, cast the, and then start casting the Big for your mana. And that's very much built into those decks. And these are all very castable, and you get what you pay for uh, compared to some of those MDFC lands that kind of suck.
1: I can confirm as a Living End gamer and one of the things about the cycle is I'm convinced someone at Wizards was like we cannot give Modern Living End a blue cycling creature for a basic island so they created Lorian Revealed instead which is arguably better but that's just my own personal conspiracy theory. I do think that the the land the land cycling cycle is so much better than the mdfc's because like creating two four four indestructible angels is super powerful especially when you look at eagles of the north but i think in general a six five that needs three creatures to block it is so much better than agadim's awakening and lorraine revealed i believe is better than i can't remember the front half of the blue one at the moment
2: oh the uh seagate something
1: rather Seagate restoration and i think just for what you get these are much better cards. And obviously, the rarity allows it to see play in more formats or whatever. But in general, I think the creature cycle is just better than the MDF cycle. Obviously, there's exceptions like oops, all spells or whatever. But I think if you had to re examine your decks today, I think you'd start looking more at the land cyclers than you would the MDFCs for cards to pitch to Fury or Chromox or whatever.
0: Anecdotally, I've probably cast Amaria's Call two or three times in Legacy, whereas this week I have probably hard cast five of these cycling cards, uh, especially the troll. The, the difference of that one mana, and especially since Amaria's Call requires white, 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 and like Shatter Skull Smashing requires red, red, they're easy to cast. It matters if you're an ancient tomb gamer
1: most of these are also creatures we talked about living end but there's a card that sees more play in legacy that puts creatures from the graveyard onto the battlefield and that's reanimate reanimating a troll is scary That's six power on turn one that can't be blocked for at least several turns i mean these cards are just terrific and i think that we're going to see a change in dynamic like If we look back six months ago, I believe on this very podcast, we said that black was next to unplayable. Like, why would you play it? All of a sudden, the formats discover grief, reanimate. We get Troll of Kazudum, Orcish, Bowmasters. The top four decks on Goldfish right now are all black decks. And it's just a wild shift we've seen in the last six months.
2: Time to dust off your uros. Is that what you're telling me? The the natural predator of black decks?
1: I was going to say Veil of Summer, but Brian, whatever makes you happy.
2: Uh, You can put both on the same deck, it turns out.
0: So not only are these just, like, big creatures, but they are creatures with relevant abilities as well. Generous Ent gives you some food, and if you get to the point where you're casting one of these things, the food is probably nice to help you stabilize and get a little bit more wiggle room. The troll is so hard to block. Like, I cannot overstate how scared I am, when my opponent reanimates one of those and I don't just have a source to plowshares in hand immediately.
1: For the troll, it doesn't die to fury. It's a 6-5. And then if you look at the end, it blocks a Dragon's Rage Channeler or a Delver and survives a Lightning Bolt.
2: Yeah, it can even bounce off all but the largest Murktide regions too. 7? Uh, That's a huge tookus. Troll has to do Like, just don't even think about blocking it. It's, just, it's functionally unblockable because you know what black decks are pretty good at doing? Killing a creature. You scrimp and save and get your third creature into play. And they reanimated this thing on turn one or two. Like how big could these creatures possibly be? And then like, you know, Bowmaster, your shit's dead. Take six. That this is, you need a real removal spell for this. All of the creatures on these cost six, which is not even possible to prismatic ending. Even in perfect circumstances, there are not, there are not six colors you could reach for on that. Uh, This whole cycle immune to prismatic ending. And it's, Basically, Swords to plowshares are bust on Troll of Khazad-dum, uh, unless we're digging into Assassin's Trophy or, or some shit. Uh, I don't even know. You can't Fatal Push it even with Revolt. These things are so big, is what I'm trying to say.
1: If you look back a little bit in time, we were talking about how the Zoomers really discovered something when they broke. Is it Delver Splashing Black for Snuff Out for the initiative matchup, but also the Mirror for Murtide region? It's funny because while Snuff Out fits perfectly into these Troll Cause of Doom reanimate grief decks, the issue is that all of the best decks are black now and Snuff Out doesn't kill black creatures. So the reason to play black is now diminishing a little bit because everybody else is also doing it. It doesn't kill Bowmasters, the Orc, Grief, Trolls. Like it's kind of wild how quickly Snuff Out went from being the nuts to maybe we'll play one.
0: Also misses the Plague Engineer, which is shutting off your Bowmasters. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, Shouldred's Edict lately. That one is
2: pretty nice because it's an Edict that can clip the Bowmaster even if the army's in play. So you can name non-token creature as the sack out. There's some stuff you can do, but uh, I think Grixis is pretty cool right now in general, both on the, the tempo, mid range, and control scales of Grixis. The thing about Grixis that has always been the most interesting and frustrating challenge is you don't have swords to plowshares. You got to figure out what the spread of like Sudden Edict is good against some things, but it's bad against Bowmaster because it brings its own second creature. Fatal Push is good till it's not till you're looking at a Troll of Kazadoom. Are we going to put actual like go for the throat in a deck? Uh, I don't know. Uh, There's it's like a frustrating but rewarding exercise when you understand the metagame and know what you
0: need to kill and what removal spells to play to do it. I've also found that, like, some generic answers aren't as great against these as you might expect. So your opponent reanimates a troll, you ferry it, bounce it, okay, it's uncastable, so they just turn it into a land, make their next land drop, and, you know, cast a Merktide region or whatever. Bouncing them is very awkward.
2: And, yeah, they're out of range of Skyclave Apparition as well. I'm just thinking of all the, the removal that's gated by anything. like Abrupt nobody's Decay. Played. It's yeah, not yeah, I was common. about to say nobody's played Abrupt Decay in four years, but... Uh, you can't hit. You can't reach for that. Murderous cut does get them. Maybe it's time for ninjas to make a comeback and start cutting people up.
0: I don't know. I I literally recorded that with that deck this morning. So yeah. here's here's some sage advice to the ninja players out there. Number one, if you're playing ninjas, splash white swords to plowshares is incredibly important. Number two, don't play against orcish bowmasters. Your changeling outcasts die. It's very awkward with your retrofitter foundry tokens. Like sometimes you can play that dance. The version that I played had Teferi, which was also bad versus Bowmasters. And you also have like ponders and brainstorms as well. Uh, I was playing my own Bowmasters. I did not feel like I was playing the better Bowmaster deck in any of my rounds. Um, Good good luck, ninja players. I think uh, I think it's tough for you. You didn't answer the important question, though. How many murderous cuts were in the deck? none there we go Four That's four swords to plowshares one prismatic ending uh two to fairy main
2: i've played a lot of ninjas and i know this is not the the purpose of the episode and we're running low on time here but all of the deck space when you get cute with shit like that affects the ninja plan and i just wonder like how much of a ninja deck were you or were you like an esper mid-range deck with a hoop jumping wind con that was probably worse than just some card i don't know like uh we don't need to have that whole conversation, but I'm immediately suspicious of the list based on all the things you just said.
0: Uh, your gut feeling is correct. My conclusion okay. began with, God, I missed four days. I missed having days to protect those ninjas so much because I had to make space for the other cards.
2: Deck building lesson here. Uh, we're talking about replacing things with other things. That is the topic and opportunity cost uh, where you can shave a land for Troll of Kazdoom, but you probably shouldn't change a land for abundant growth and or Abundant Harvest, and you probably shouldn't cut all your ninja protection spells for three Mana Planeswalkers in a deck built to do something cool on turn two. Count it.
0: Maybe I should have played the troll, though. Yuriko trigger reveal troll.
2: (laughs) Yeah, get wrecked. Ninja scam Coming soon. That sounds reasonable, actually. Grief is a pretty good hit, Uh, reanimating your Yuriko when
0: she gets bolted. Okay, my juices are flowing now. All right, so does anyone have any other thoughts here regarding our Lord of the Rings mana cyclers?
2: I just want to say that Loran revealed is it's making waves everywhere that it's legal in Troll of Kazudum, The reanimate synergy is is there. Generous and Oliphant they make sense in Living End and maybe some other Popper decks. Uh, Popper Reanimator uh, is getting some cool toys. The Commander Masters is downshifting like forty cards into Popper, by the way, including Dread Return. So uh, like there might be some stuff that we talk about down the road in Popper. But Lorien Revealed, I think the Vintage Challenge, if if I'm correct in my timing, uh, is was won last week, or the, it was a finals chop of some mono-blue nonsense deck with just like eight forces, four Lorien revealeds and random Wincon in there somewhere. I, I didn't look closely at the list, but I think Ego Baron is back in the queues and just farming challenges like it's 2020 again. This Lorien Revealed deck looks pretty cool. Also, if we are to trust the secondary market, as a measure of playability on cards. I bought all of these cards in regular and foil last night because I knew I was gonna need them for both Popper and Normal Magic. All of these cards are like 15, 20 cents and the foils are like 20 or 30 cents, except Lorian Revealed, which is a full dollar bill for the normal version and approaching 10 for the foil. It has a lot of heat on it and people seem to know that
0: and they're buying up the good ones. All right, so real talk. Did you buy foil Eagles of the North? No, I did, Phil. I'm a sicko.
2: Also, the the full eight of four Eagles of the North and four foil Eagles of the North was under $2 total. And I noticed another weird thing that kind of skeezed me out. Oliphant has a special treatment, like an extended art treatment, and the other four don't. There's just the card, and then Oliphant just has two printings. It's part of one of those cool multi-art panoramics, which makes sense, but also... Gave me the, the heebie-jeebies when I was shopping and had to buy six of these because I'm a completionist sicko and couldn't just not buy the other art for the one that I'm never
1: going to play. Every time I've placed an order on yet in the last month or so, I've added all of the land cyclers that they still had in stock in Japanese foil to my cart. So I have at least 12 of each Japanese foil, and they all cost less than 50 cents to pick up at the time. Uh, I just think that these things are going to be multi-format all-stars for years to come.
2: Yep, you've already uh, paid your rent with the lore and reveals. If you turn around and flip those now, you probably get 15 or 20 out of those Japanese foils, but I know you're not going to. Cool cards, and I like cards like this, just this type of printing. These are meaningfully impactful to multiple decks across multiple of the strongest formats in Magic. But they're just, like, cool comments that enable draft. Like, they help you hit your land drop in draft, and then they're a big creature later. And none of them are nonsense. Like, this isn't Arkham's Astrolabe enabling a draft archetype. These are just cards. And they're totally fine, and they're not broken, but here we are dedicating a podcast episode
0: of legacy content to them. Very cool stuff. I guess if I can leave you with some final words of wisdom legacy is currently in one of the biggest periods of flux that it's seen in i don't know maybe the past five years or so with a huge amount of power being injected into the format while also these commons that are very subtly going to change deck building be prepared to adapt and be prepared to test new things even if you don't necessarily think they are going to be good because you will probably learn a lot by trying out some new stuff.